Good morning. Thank you for showing up. <clears throat> Thank you for practicing and participating. So today we are resuming uh, the Platform Sutra book study, session number seven, section 28. Good friends, if you wish to enter the Dharma realm of the deep mind, the Samadhi of Prajna, you only need to practice the practice of Prajna Paramita. By merely memorizing the diamond Prajna Paramita Sutra, you will be able to see your nature and enter the Prajna Samadhi. Indeed, such a person's merit has no limit and it is praised in detail in the sutra as beyond description. This is the teaching of the Supreme Vehicle, which is spoken, of, spoken on behalf of those with the great capacity for the highest wisdom. When those of lesser capacity hear this teaching, they fail to develop any faith in it. And why not? It's like when the great dragon sends down a heavy rain, and it rains on Sambudvipa, this is actually another way to refer to ancient India, until it, its towns and villages are all swept away like leaves in the stream. But if the same rain falls on the ocean, it is not affected. When those who follow the Mahayana hear about the Diamond Sutra, their minds expand with understanding. Thus, our original nature already possesses the wisdom of Prajna. And when we use this wisdom to view things, we don't depend on words. It's like the rain, which doesn't originally come from the heavens, but from the dragon king, who draws this water from the rivers and seas and uses it to nourish every being and every plant, both sentient and the non-sentient and the rivers all flow back into the ocean, and the ocean absorbs and combines them into its one body. The Prajna wisdom, that is the original nature of all beings, is also like this. So, this is a commentary from Bill Porter about this. He says, in the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha explains that when we vow to liberate all beings, and we do so without attachment to ourselves, to beings, or to liberation, we create a body of merit equivalent to the body of realization, Sambhogakaya, of every Buddha. And it is through the production of such merit that we see our nature and become Buddhas. People who have not experienced this for themselves have no faith in such practice. Its claims sound impossible, too vast to comprehend, much less realize. <clears throat> but those who cultivate this teaching discover that every drop of water reflects the entire sky. Every thought is a door to enlightenment and it leads right back to our original nature. <clears throat> Excuse me. But to see this depends on the transformative power of Prajna. Now, <clears throat> obviously this is very important because practice often seems irrelevant unless there is something in us that can recognize it and uh, we have seen many times people who 
float into the Sangha, stick around for a while, and drift away. Claiming different reasons why they drift away, but essentially what happens is that the teachings can only be can only be felt if something in us resonates with it, right? It's not the teachings are not something that we have to add on to what we know. So it's not cumulative knowledge that we have to look at, but rather something that is that echoes within us and awakens what is already there. Now it takes both, right? So what brings us to practice is often that, right? Uh, if it's not that, if it's not something deep from within, then in most cases we will move on to something else or we will lose the interest in practice. But if when there is bodhicitta, genuine bodhicitta arising in us, then the practice seems much more than just interesting. It, it evokes something within us and it nourishes something within us. And when this happens, it grows. And when it grows, the teachings make sense in a much deeper and different way. Right? So it's not something that we can explain, but it's something that we can experience. You know, and sometimes people have different experiences in, in, in Zazen. And, and what I tell them, they ask me questions about that. What I tell them is that our ability to understand is very limited. Our ability to understand a reality through our senses is very limited. And, and the, the practice of Zazen is actually not a way to understand as much as a way to experience reality. When we insist on trying to understand reality through our senses, we, we will hit a wall. And hitting a wall, we may think, well, it is either not for me or I, I am unable to understand that. Right? But it is not because we are unable to experience, it's because we insist on trying to understand it through thought, which that by itself creates a barrier. And if we don't see that, we will drift away naturally. So what he's saying here is very important, is that, we, that, that when we enter practice, we have to understand that we are entering a practice that is there to awaken what is already within us. And then, of course, when people, people who have not experienced this for themselves have no faith in the practice because the faith is not externalized. It has to come from within. And then there is uh, that paragraph, when those who of lesser capacity hear this teaching, they fail to develop any faith in it. And why not? It's like when the great dragon sends down heavy rain and it rains on Jambudvipa, ancient India, until its towns and villages are all swept away like leaves in the stream. But if the same rain falls on the ocean, the ocean is not affected. Now, the great heavenly rain is naturally absorbed by the ocean since it is essentially the ocean itself. It is of the same nature. So it, re it recognizes itself and it, it's able to absorb itself, essentially. So in the same way, every instance, every experience that we go through, and every sentient and non-sentient beings also return to the great ocean of wisdom from which they arise. 
But when we view ourselves as small and separated from reality, this great ocean of wisdom will remain foreign and inaccessible to us. And so by saying people of lesser capacity, Huineg echoes what he said in previous section. The mind's capacity is great, but when we don't use it, it is small. So those of lesser capacity means those who do not use the mind's great capacity. It's not that they don't have it. They simply don't use it. Or we simply don't use it. Right? So it's not a derogatory way of seeing people. It's just, it's just an observation of those who are able or are putting it to use and those who are not putting it to use. So the mind's great capacity, which they are inherently endowed with, yet remain unaware of it. So before we move on to the next section, any thoughts, any questions, any comments on this section? How do we feel about this when he talks about people of lesser capacity? How do we feel about ourselves? How do we feel about other people? Major, go ahead. the pup sitting in front of me i can't reach um good, good morning everyone good morning so i kind of when you were saying that about wanting to understand i kind of um just kind of hit something there um there's we've had some conversations you and i about me wanting to go deeper and understand certain things and be uh feeling like um I fail sometimes when I'm working on my koans and everything. And it's very frustrating. And I've had that thought many times. They're like, well, maybe this is just not for me. That maybe this is just not, um, you know, I, I know I get something out of it, but I just, I just don't seem to understand what is it, you know? What is this whole thing, you know? And when people ask me, why do you practice and stuff, you know, it's, uh, you know, why do you sit there for hours, you know, doing nothing, just sitting there, you know, wasting time sometimes, you know? Um, yeah, I kind of, sometimes I've had moments where I felt like that, like there's so much that needs to be done to keep me, you know, moving and stuff. And I'm sitting here wondering, uh, okay, is this working? Am I going deeper? Am I, you know, I still, I'm terrible with koans and stuff, but I'm trying to understand what it is that I'm doing here sometimes. But then when I don't think about it, when I just sit and I don't think about what it is that I'm supposed to be, you know, understanding or, or I'm supposed to be getting out of it, then I, I do happen to, to feel that there's something is shifting or something is moving. Um, after sitting, I'll go out and um, I'll see things a little bit differently. I've noticed nature differently. I notice people around me differently. Even even the way I feel is different. But when I'm sitting and I let my thoughts go, 
then I'm like, okay, what am I doing here? You know? And then all of a sudden afterwards, I do feel that something is shifting. I just can't explain it. And I can't put a, like my finger on it. Like, what is it? You know? But, um, when I don't sit, I really do notice the difference. I feel like I'm disconnected. Mm -hmm. I'm disconnecting from something, you know, important. So when, when you said that, trying to, um, to understand it, make sense of it. I was like, okay, so that's probably why I feel the way that I do. I'm trying to understand it with my mind instead of feeling it with my body and um yeah so that came up for me i don't you know when you said that i was like okay that that answers one of my my questions one of my thoughts yeah so th thank you major so yeah uh using using only or solely the thinking mind to understand reality is actually what he means by those of lesser capacity. We, we, when we use the mind, the thinking mind only, all our senses to, to understand, to figure out reality, we basically stoop down to that small mindedness or small capacity. So it's not that we, we are defined by that. It's just that we are not using it. That's all. So, and we insist on, on trying to understand or we insist on the uh, the only possibility, there is no other possibility to understand other than through my mind. So I, therefore, it has to do with my ability to understand or to think, or it has to do with my IQ level or whatever, however we think about that, right? But it is essentially unfathomable, right? We talk about it, capital I, capital T, as being unfathomable, ungraspable. Yet we still think that, well, yeah, maybe that's true. But in my case, I can figure it out if I try hard enough, if I think hard enough about that, right? I'm smart. I'm able to figure out things. I'll figure that one out as well. And this is the, the problem or the issue or the barrier. Now, when we, when we actually stop trying, even for a little bit, stop trying to figure it out, it becomes revealed, not in the way we, we think of it, but more as an experience. We can always experience, but we cannot understand. So the question is, are we okay with not understanding it in a conventional, logical, thought-based way? That's really the question. Because as long as we say, no, I in, I'm going to keep insisting on trying to figure it out through thought, then we are people of lesser capacity. As long as we claim that, and when we put that aside and, and, and then stop trying for a bit, then something else arises. Then there is this great trust because there, there are experiences, so there is an experience. And the experience itself, we may not be able to explain it to others, we may not be able to convey it to others, but we know by, by means of experience, we know what it is. Not knowing by means of thought, but knowing by means of experience. Therefore, we have to experience ourselves in order to, to see in a different way. So we cannot explain it to others, but we can help others to practice 
or encourage others to practice so they can see for themselves. And that's what we do as a Sangha. Encourage each other. Stick around. Keep looking. When you get discouraged, let's help you out. What's going on? So, yeah. Does that work? Thank you. Anyone else? Daibo, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, a certain kind of unity he's referring to here. Um, and I think he brings it out beautifully in the last metaphor of the section, where it begins, it's like the rain, which doesn't originally come from the heavens, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't originally come from something separated from us, but from the dragon king. The dragon king, I believe, refers to, you know, the keeper of the Prajnaparamita or the Prajnaparamita itself or the nature of reality itself, who draws this water from the rivers and seas and then uses it to nourish every being and plant, both sentient and non-sentient. And then he goes on to say, and then the rivers all flow back into the ocean and the ocean absorbs and combines them into one body. So it's the, the it doesn't come from something outside of us. It comes from itself. So... I believe what he's referring to here is that this wisdom is not something that we can learn from outside of us. It doesn't come from outside of us. It comes from inside of us. Um, and the metaphor of the rain, where the rain comes up from the rivers and lakes, nourishes everything, goes back to the rivers and lakes. So the cyclical kind of internal unity of the wisdom, um, I believe, is beautifully displayed in, in this metaphor at the end. So... Mm -hmm. You know, rather than looking outside of ourselves for this wisdom, it's really the wisdom is coming from us, inside of us, out into the world and back into us. And I believe that, that that's what um, he's saying here. And, then, and, and understanding that is the, um, and, and, and making that perceptual shift um, is the distinction between those of lesser um, and, you know, greater um, sort of, uh, you know, limits or understanding. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Daibo. Yes, so the Dragon King, right? So the Dragon King is none other than you, right? And you nurture you, right? But, but it, does, it does take that trust to go beyond what seems to be natural, what seems to be comfortable, what seems to be comforting, to us, right? To go beyond that and to sit and to rest in it. When we rest in it long enough, when we turn towards it often, we realize again and again that essentially we are nurturing ourselves, right? We, we realize that, that what we're looking for is already there. It's just that we may not understand it. And that's fine. We don't have to understand it. It's the exact same thing when, when, when you look at animals. They don't have to understand. They don't have an understanding of what they are in relation to other creatures in order to be perfectly in alignment with what they are or perfectly in alignment with reality. They don't ponder that. There is nothing but that. We stop and think about it and when we do that, we step out of the stream. 
we never really are, we never are separated, but there is that appearance of being separated, the appearance or, or the, the feeling of being detached or disconnected. And of course, that informs our, often that informs our uh, speech and behavior because we feel separated. Therefore, we, we think in a separated way, we, we speak in a separated way, and we act in ways that are separated, which obviously causes a lot of harm. And that is acting in a way that is of lesser capacity. Having great capacity, we act in ways that are actually, they reflect lesser capacity. So we are those with lesser capacity and we, we are those with greater capacity. It's just that when we, when we function within the lesser capacity, it makes no sense that there is another way to be. So, thank you. Should we move on? Make sure I don't miss it. If you, if you see a hand and I don't see the hand coming up, please let me know. Okay, Jifu, good morning. Good morning. Uh, just a brief thought. Um, I think it takes a lot of trust um, because I run into people who've read more uh, about Buddhism or might be able to recite uh, information to me that I don't necessarily retain. And um, it's easy to have a moment of doubt there um, because the same people collect this knowledge and um, they pick it up and put it down and move on from there. Mm -hmm. So for me, it requires a being with, as you've described, um, so that I can make sense of the difference between dabbling in information that's informative and that experiential sense of being with the it. Um, and I just have to bring myself back to um, trusting in the it um, so that I'm not confronted by others who have information versus a different kind of knowledge. So it's that trust, I think, ultimately. Yes, thank very you. much so. Thank you. So if we walk around and we... Uh, show off our knowledge, right? Our knowledge about whatever it is about Buddhism, our, our um, knowledge about whatever it is, uh, other subject that we may have uh, uh, dove into in the past. It's, it's, it's really the same as having anything else, right? It comes from uh, quantification, right? It comes from comparisons. It comes from a mind that does not understand right? Therefore, it functions within the lesser capacity. Within the lesser capacity, there is high and low, and low seems not as good as high. Within the great capacity, everything returns to everything. No one knows more, no one knows less. No one is more, no one is less. And the trust you're referring to is that, right? To trust that the even ground is always even. On the even ground, we walk around boasting this, saying that, you know, I'm better than this, he's better than that. But everything is happening on the even ground. So the simple act of prostration, putting your forehead to the ground, is a reminder 
off the even ground. What does it matter? So, right? So, so we're not talking about cumulative knowledge, accumulated knowledge. You don't have to know anything about Buddhism in order to practice Buddhism. You don't have to read one letter. We do, because it's skillful, because it helps. But yeah, the great trust, not just trust. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, if you have something to say, uh, just hold off. I'm going to read the next section because it does uh, connect to the previous one. And then we can talk about it some more. When people of small capacity hear this direct teaching, they're like the plants in the ground that have shallow roots. If they should ever get drenched by heavy rain, they, quickly, they are quickly uprooted or they don't grow very tall. People of small capacity are also like this. But they all possess the wisdom of Prajna. All possess the, the wisdom of Prajna. The same as people who are truly wise. So why don't they understand the Dharma when they hear it? It's because their barriers of mistaken views are so thick and their roots of passions are so deep. It's, it's like when the heavy clouds cover the sun. Unless the wind blows them away, the sun cannot shine through. Now, also, it's important to note here that this is not meant to be criticism or discrimination of any sort. Huineng simply expresses things as they are. As we chant in the Sandukai, human beings may be wise or foolish, but the way has no northern or southern ancestors. While the way itself is originally without any divisions and everyone is equally endowed with the same purity and inherent wisdom, some people are going to be more in touch with it and act in a more realized way, and others are not going to be in touch with it and act in a more deluded way. And that is mostly depends on how thick the barriers of our delusions are, as Huineng says, using the analogy of clouds covering the sun. Now, the barriers or, or mistaken views, uh, we call them in Buddhism, they're called kleshas. So in Buddhism, these coverings are known as avidya, ignorance, asmita, ego identification, raga or raja, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, desire and pleasure, dvesha, avoidance, and abhini vesha, attachments and fear. So the point in that is we're all dealing with kleshas and all, we all cover up our inherent wisdom to some degree. And this is why it's, it's, this is why it's so important to, to get in touch with that. This is why it's so important to, instead of seeking something, to look at the way we cover what we are seeking. As long as we say, I am looking for something, we say it is not here yet or I am not endowed with it yet. But when we change that, and instead of seeking something that we are endowed with, we look at the way we cover it up, then actually it can develop a better uh, uh, understanding of trust, how to practice trust. Also, a much more um, practical way of practicing. And also it can be very uh, encouraging, right? To, to realize, to, to at least 
bring up the, the, the notion of I am already there. It is already here within me. It's just that I am lost or I'm covering it up. And that can really change anything. As he's talking about the energy of clouds covering the sun, the sun doesn't come and go. It does what it does on a consistent basis. The sun is the sun. We see it or don't see it. We close our eyes. We get bogged down. We get distracted. So I think it's very clear, not that it's easy or simple or clear in terms of practice, but the instruction is very clear or the direction is very clear. Is it to you? Any thoughts? How about Kyotai? She's been quiet for a while. Good morning. Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, I, we talk about this a lot. I feel like um, the intrinsic nature of all things and our ability to recognize it or not recognize it. Um, and I think we can all identify with times where you feel very close and connected and deep and rooted and times where, uh, as Jufu was talking about, you just have to trust that it's there, it's unchanging. I can't see it or recognize it directly right now, but I know that the sun is there shining and I'm just gonna believe that's true until I can actually see that again. Um, and depending on how well practiced you are, you might have, you know, they're talking here about shallow roots versus uh, deeper roots, being able to pull nourishment from from the ground, from the source, um, based on how how much you allow yourself to grow and deepen in your practice. I think it's kind of very beautifully stated in that that first sentence there. Um, so I guess what it brings for me is really um, thinking about if you're feeling discouraged by your practice knowing that we just keep cultivating the depth and the strength of it, trusting that it's there um, even when we can't feel it, even when we don't recognize it, um, but knowing that we're growing our roots deep so that when we need to rely on that, we can. Yeah. yeah. That's all for now. Thanks. Thank you. So we need to rely on, on the practice and we also need to use it well in terms of cultivating the, the, the flashlight, right? Our ability to see and then directing it. Let's put it this way. We have to go to where it hurts. If we, if we want to uncover or if we want to see where we get caught up or how we get distracted, we have to go to where it hurts. We have to go towards the pain rather than use the practice to run away from the pain. And it's very important that we, we do that because otherwise the coverings remain as they are. 
and we remain unaware of how we cover it up. So we have to, to muster up the courage to go to where it hurts. As we say, the way, the way out is in. And, and, and practice can be, uh, can be practiced as an escape if we're not doing that. So it's just very important. And, and uh, in terms of the, the klesha, so ignorance, right? Ego identification, desire and pleasure. To examine, avoidance, dvesha. To examine our own avoidance. What am I avoiding? Often we may drown ourselves with, you know, or fill up the schedule with activities, all kinds of activities that we, we are convinced that are necessary. But if we look deeper, we may see that there is a possibility that we do that in order to avoid looking within, in order to avoid getting in touch with whatever is there that is covering. So there's a lot there that uh, I think we need to examine, right, in terms of, not just in terms of practice, in terms of our practice. Our practice. It's very different from person to person. While practice is the same, the way we practice has to be different because we don't walk around with the same karma. We're different. So while we're using the same flashlight, what we see is not going to be the same. That work? Does that make sense? This is just one section of this, uh, this part and I want to keep going, continue on 29. But uh, if anybody wants to say something, we have time. Good? Okay. So, 29 continues. It isn't the wisdom of Prajna that's great or small. It's because all these beings have deluded themselves, us, we have deluded ourselves, into looking for a Buddha through external practices and haven't yet realized their own nature that they remain people of small capacity. And yet... On hearing this direct teaching, if they depend not on external practices, but simply on their own minds, and they let their own nature give rise to right views, even all these beings with their mistaken views, their passions, and their afflictions will suddenly wake up, and like the ocean that takes in all rivers, the great and the small, and combines them into one, they will see into their own nature and not dwell on the inside or the outside. They will come and go freely and will be able to get rid of attachments and penetrate everything without restriction. The mind that cultivates such a practice is basically not different from the Prajna Paramita Sutra. So that's that mind, right? So the, the great ocean or the king, the dragon king is exactly that. 
You know, in, in other words, the teachings come from that, not from outside. Or we can say that the teachings come from us, from our true nature. And it's an interesting way, interesting way of seeing it, right? Because when we see a teaching, we look at it in, in a very, uh, we look at it from a very fixed position. And then, well, do I like it? Do I not like it? Should I go along with that? Should I believe it or not believe it? Or should I just move on? But this is actually quite radical because it's saying you are looking at yourself. So if you say, well, that's not for me, you are basically rejecting yourself. How could you not be for you? Now, when, the, when, when we operate from a small capacity... Yes, we pick and choose. That's not for me, that's for me. But the picking and choosing is always done from a fixed notion of a static self. That is the delusion. So to see the teachings as a mirror that echo who we are, is the right way to practice. And, of course, it, it moves us from the small capacity to the large capacity. We're not going anywhere else. Everything is happening right here. It's just that our ability to see changes or expands. Now, uh, this is from the commentary. Bill Porter, he talks about external practices. And he says, these include restrictions of behavior based on a mistaken view of morality, restrictions of thought based on mistaken view of meditation, and restrictions of knowledge based on mistaken view of wisdom. So this is what we this is seeing a practice outside of our true nature. I mean going along with something that is essentially not foreign, but we see it as foreign, which we then ponder, should I accept or reject? And then the Prajna Paramita Sutra, so I want to read what Bill Porter says about that. <clears throat> there are around two dozen sutras in the Chinese Buddhist canon that teach the Prajna Paramita teachings. And this term has sometimes been used in reference to all of them or to specific sutras in this group, such as the Diamond Sutra or the Hot Sutra. In the Diamond Sutra, when Subhuti asked the Buddha the name of these teachings, the Buddha tell him to call it the Prajna Paramita, but warns him that what the Tathagata says is the Prajna Paramita is no Prajna Paramita. Thus, it is called the Prajna Paramita. In his own commentary to the Diamond Sutra, Huineng makes it clear that the Sutra itself is every Buddha Dharma every Buddha's Dharmakaya or real body, body of reality. And that those who cultivate this teaching share the same body of realization as every Buddha. So, what, again, what we are studying is who we are in essence. And it is called the Prajna Paramita Sutra, or the collection of teachings. So, any questions so far? About great capacity, small capacity, 
about how we get caught up, about how we free ourselves from what we get caught up in. Or about how you view the practice. Yoga, you want to say something? Okay, do we see okay. it as who we are or do we see it as something outside of us that we have to understand or try to understand? I think the minute we try to understand it, um, it it's caught us. And it catches our attention and it holds our attention and then the understanding is... Um, clouded by our senses and by what we think of what we thought what we've what we think we've found <clears throat> so we we create something that we think we found mm -hmm. yes it becomes our it becomes a concept it becomes a structure and we glom onto it and then once we glom onto it, um, it becomes something that hinders us. Well, here's a question. Do we see ourselves in the teachings? I think that the teachings are ourselves and our expansive nature um, is something we can't really pinpoint in time or space. We have to um, be it more than think it. <clears throat> Thank you. So, so the question for us to to uh, to look at when we are when we read, when we chant, when we sit, when we turn towards the practice, any aspect of practice doesn't really matter what it is. Do we feel at home, or is it foreign? Well, if we've made it separate from ourselves, right. But I, what I'm asking is how, we, how you feel. I thought I saw a hand. Yeah, L. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, I feel like up till now, my experience of the practice is something that when I come back to it, I feel very at home. And I'm like, oh, this is nice. But I've noticed in moments where I'm really struggling or um, where I'm like in a dark time, I start to feel like, I, I think my thinking is more like, oh, that practice is for other people. Mm -hmm. Or I think something like if I was more of a Buddha or more of an enlightened person, then I wouldn't be suffering in this way. So that separation does happen when under duress and yeah i'm just curious about how people um i think like 
kind of hold on, Kyotai and Jifu were talking earlier about cultivating that trust or digging the roots deeper. And um, I'm still figuring out how to do that when there's like a new, more challenging, more stressful situation, because I think I just kind of run away at those times. That's exactly what he, thank you. That's exactly what he's talking about, right? When we, when we shift in a way to that small capacity, right? And the conventional reality actually operates <clears throat> within that, right? It, it is operating within that uh, um, small mindedness. It's again, it's not criticism. It's just the way it is, right? And we, when we expand from that, <clears throat> then we are able to function within the, the conventional reality from a different place with a different kind of understanding. But, but often what happens is that we, we get lost in the vortex of everyday life and we give the details of life a lot of weight and a lot of importance. And a great deal of drama is created from the details of our everyday life, mm -hmm. right? As if we are the center of it all. Everything revolves around me. Everything is about or for me, separated from you. That's small capacity. It's very common. That's why it seems so natural to us, because everybody does that. Because that's how we think. That's how we are taught to think. Separated from one another. And to expand from that great, from that small capacity to great capacity is to realize that, wait a minute, there's something off in that. This is not, this is, a, 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 this is one way of seeing reality, right? From, through our senses. But if we expand from that, we realize that there is a lot more than just that, <clears throat> right? And then, and then we learn to rest in it. Now, I was asking before about recognizing ourselves in the practice because when I started uh, uh, to become interested in practice, I was maybe 15 years old, I started to read. I, I don't know what got me to read, but I started to read. I had no idea what I was reading, but I felt strong affinity. I did not understand most of it. It was foreign, meaning the, the, the words were foreign, the language was foreign, it was different. But yet there was something in me that kept pulling me into it. Because I reckon, now I can say, looking back, I can say I recognize myself in it. But there is something in the teachings that is way beyond written words on, in a book or a piece of paper. And that's the question. Now, we don't want to quantify it, how much of it do we, we feel, right? Because then we fall right back in the same small mind that chops up reality. But just even a little bit of that goes a very long way, as long as, as, long as we know to keep nurturing it and stay with the practice. Now, as you say, especially when we get bogged down by life, Right? Whether it's by our own uh, circumstances or by watching the news these days. 
But we can say that there are many reasons to feel discouraged these days. Which means we have to expand. We have to turn to the practice. See ourselves in it. Then go back to dealing with the day-to-day mundane, so to speak, stuff. And do what we can do. Do what we have to do. Of course we have to do it. Of course there is a schedule. Of course we have to make a living. We have to pay the mortgage or the bills. Obviously. And take care of our bodies. And take care of our families. So it's not so much what we do. It's how we do it that changes. Do, do we see the connection? Roger, did you have your hand up before? Did you change your mind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got me. <laughs> um, I have been thinking a lot about, um, it kind of, you know, since we've started um, talking this morning and thinking about how language and words and I think we've spoke about it before, um, you know, how they, how words have a certain meaning, but it, you know, really the, the deeper connection of what it means, something different and words, you know, sometimes change that meaning. Um, and before we were talking about animals, you know, they just kind of know, they just go on and do everything they need to do. And certainly they have their own language. Um, but I always, I always find a real connection point um, to kind of home when I'm in, you know, the outdoors or I'm outside and I feel the weather or the wind. Um, and certainly there are no words. So, you know, how it all relates back, but, um, you know, words certainly change it all and getting back to something that's quiet. And, you know, when we sit, it's quiet. And when it's quiet, you know, everyone can kind of feel a sense together. Um, so just thinking of, of what would all be before words, before language, and um, how it all, you know, that innate feeling mm-hmm. of interconnectedness without words. Yeah, we call it zazen, <laughs> right? So no words are needed. Not a single letter is needed, right? Yeah. So we have to forget the words and then know how to speak with each other in a much better way. Right? So we have to connect with each other and with reality in a different way. Right? Through silence. And then, yeah, we can definitely speak without getting caught up by words. But, you know, going out for a walk, you know, whether it's by the ocean or forest or mountain, it's the same as reading the sutras. Because everything is teaching, everything is a remind, can be a reminder of who we are, in essence. Anything and everything is essentially, can essentially be a portal and a reminder. I also think there's, um, you know, trying to, you know, answer some simple questions with some bigger answers. Um, my kids like to ask me questions like, um, you know, 
why are you going this way? You're going the wrong way. You know, if I'm turned down a different road. And then I think, well, this is just another way, you know, um, or, or my kids ask, where does the highway end? <laughs> I was like, well, maybe it just never ends. You know, the earth is round. <laughs> so I, I don't know, just, um, just the, the chance to expand some answers. Yeah. Like finding the, the way between um, short routes and long routes. Yeah, to step away from from the uh, uh, fixedness of 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 mind of our minds, right? The the absolutes that are floating around in our minds, right? To step away from that is to actually expand and open it up. I don't know. I don't know. Again and again, I just don't know, and it's perfectly fine. I don't have to know. Right? And not knowing actually can help us celebrate life rather than try to figure it out. Who says we have to figure it out? We do. You, know, I, you guys probably know right, the stories about the Buddha. Different uh, uh, practitioners came to him with different uh, esoteric questions or metaphysical questions. And he said, I never said I'm going to answer all these. You know, he said, actually, I never said I, I will be able to answer all these. I'm not here for that, he said. All I'm saying to you is that, you know, you got, you remember the story, you got shot, it's like you got shot with a poisonous arrow and I'm, I am showing you how to remove the arrow and take care of the body and you are bothering me with questions about the person who shot the arrow, what's his name, What's his father's name? Where do they live? How many kids does he have? Who cares? This is what we get caught up in. But what he's saying is, I'm showing you a direct way to heal yourself now. And you're caught up in thoughts. And we do it. We actually, it's, it's, a, it's a nice story, but we do it in our own way. We get caught up in trying to find answers to irrelevant questions. So, anyone else? I didn't mean your questions are irrelevant. <laughs> Feel free to ask. Okay. Moving on to uh, section 30. All the sutras and texts, all 12 divisions of the Hinayana and Mahayana canons were arranged by people. And it was because of the nature of wisdom that they could do so. Moreover, if there were no people in the world, none of the 10,000 teachings would have appeared. Hence, the 10,000 teachings have been created because of people and the sutras all exist because somebody spoke them or somebody felt them and experienced them. So what, what sutras in ancient texts are always pointing at is intrinsic in everything and everyone. Before, as we just said, before one word is uttered, 
And so all the written and spoken teachings have always been just expedient means for us to get in touch with our own intrinsic nature. Those who have realized this through their own practice and observation knew from their own experiences how challenging it is to break through the, the crust of our delusional ecclesias. So they wrote and spoke about skillful ways to do so. And they did that by tapping into their own inherent wisdom and allowing that inherent wisdom to express itself. So we can say that these ancient teachings are just an expression of wisdom trying to awaken wisdom. So all the teachings are there in a way of us trying to awaken ourselves. You know, we often talk about walking eyebrow to eyebrow with ancient teachers, ancient masters. When we realize we walk eyebrow to eyebrow with them. We are them. So we look at cons, we look at and it's like, I don't understand what this, what this means. Yeah, look at the way we try to, we have to look at the way we try to understand. We, we, we almost refuse to get out of that bubble. And then we want things to come to us in this way. But if we step out of that way of thinking and we enter the teachings, we enter, whether it's a sutra or a koan, we enter this and then we realize this is me. This is my native tongue. I never knew that I speak it fluently. And actually, that's how it feels like after a while. It feels like native tongue. Should I keep reading? Okay. Some people in the world are foolish and some are wise. The foolish are shallow and the wise are deep. Don't get caught up in this, please. So the foolish ask the wise and the wise teach the Dharma to the foolish until the foolish understands and their minds open up. But once foolish people understand and their minds open up, they are not different from the wisest of the wise. That's encouraging, isn't it? So it doesn't matter how stuck we feel, how foolish we feel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything because the capacity is always there as long as we don't get caught up in judgments. Hence, as long as they don't understand, Buddhas are ordinary beings. But the moment they understand, ordinary beings are Buddhas. Hence, the 10,000 teachings are all present within your own mind. So why don't you use your own mind to see the nature of reality directly? I talked about direct teachings or seeing directly. Now seeing directly is seeing through the kleshas, through our delusions, through our coverings. But it also means owning up to the way we cover. Not blaming, but taking responsibility for the fact that we do cover. I may not feel it, I may not see it, 
but it's there, right? This is why the trust is so important. Now that I trust, I'm going to turn towards the way I cover it up. Recognize it, work with it, dissolve what I need to dissolve, own up to what I need to own up. So, as he says, why don't you use your own mind to see the nature of reality? And this is not talking about the thinking mind. This is talking about the nature of mind. Use your own true nature to see your own true nature. Look at, examine your being. Stay in touch with, with, with the body as you move around. Feel the body. Don't think about it. Watch yourself getting caught up in what's next or what was and bring your attention back to the body, back to the, the, the physical aspect of your being. And then use it to see who you truly are, is what he's saying. And then he says, the Bodhisattva Precept Sutra says our original nature is pure when you know your mind and see your nature you complete the path to buddhahood and the vimalakirti sutra says suddenly all at once you rediscover your own mind rediscover going back home realizing i've always been this way Or the meal has long been cooked. Now, while I've always been this way, I've believed. I was taught to believe what I was told. You have to become somebody. You have to prove yourself to the world. You have to accumulate in order to become, in order to be worthy. That's what we believe. So based on accumulation, based on looks, based on whatever. And then when we turn it around and look, we see that again, suddenly, all at once, we rediscover who we really are, who we truly are. So uh, I do want to see what you think about it. Before that, I want to read uh, a part of the uh, commentary from Bill Porter. He says, Sutras are sort of like patent medicines. They represent formulas developed by spiritual physicians in the practice of their art of liberation. It's a very nice way of saying it. They're not meant for everyone or every occasion, but for certain audience and a certain occasion. Thus, many, if not most, of the texts in the Buddhist canon have little relevance today. <clears throat> he says, there is no substitute for a teacher who speaks to us in our own language and in our own time and to our own problems. Still, whether it's a 2,000-year-old sutra or words of our teacher, each is generated by and for the mind, the intrinsic mind. Thus, to study the text and words of others apart from an understanding of our own minds is to waste our time in external practices. 
So ancient Buddhist or Zen texts can seem to us arcane or disconnected from our time and therefore appear as irrelevant, as he says. But beyond the cultural or linguistic differences, what these words are pointing at is essentially timeless and is always relevant to everyone. We just need to know how to read and how to study it in a way that makes it connected and relevant to our everyday life in this time and this culture. And this is on us. So we can look at the teaching and say, well, this is not relevant, and then chuck it. Right? Or, and in some, in some lineages, it happens this way. Things are discarded. Things are no longer practiced. That's one way to see it or to do it. Another way to see it is to look at it in a deeper, in a deeper way and learn how to translate that to our time. Because the teachings are timeless. So when we chuck a practice or a sutra or, or one way of practice, we may be letting go of something that can be very helpful to us because we don't take the time to examine how to use it well. So I think some of you know that, you know, what, we've inher what I've inherited from my teacher was actually quite different than the way we're practicing today. So I examined things and I, I decided to bring back some things that my teacher felt are not so important. It doesn't matter why, that's not the point. But the point is, I wanted to bring it back and examine it and ask, is it, is it uh, an issue or is it just that we have to examine how to use it? And I still do that. Even with the precepts. The precepts themselves can seem arcane, disconnected, uh, uh, repetitive, Ten Commandments, Sixteen Commandments in our case. But that's not the, what it's meant to do. It's just from our small capacity, we see it this way. So, thoughts, comments, questions? Thank you. Are you quiet this morning? I knew my time was come. Um, good morning. Uh, I think, you know, I wanted to reflect a little bit on on, on the fact of, um, you know, the, the foolish and the wise and how that is the same person in different times. <clears throat> I think, you know, it seems when you're reading this, it seems that um, there is a rediscovering happening that is absolute. And then when you when you see it, well, it's it's with you all the time after that. And uh, and you know, I don't think it's it's that is the reality of things or how they go. We 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 tend to go back and forth all the time and the clouds happen and things, you know, I always quote something that I really like about Aikido when all sensei, uh, who's the master of Aikido, the kind of creator of it, um, somebody was impressed that he never lose balance when practicing and he said, oh, well, I'm losing balance all the time. It's just, I regain it very quickly. And 
and the losing balance is part of that. It's like the foolish and the wise are the same person. You're not becoming wise forever or not foolish forever. It's just different, different situations that bring you to different ways of understanding. And, and that reflects on the great trust that we were discussing before. Um, great trust is, is, is what you, you know, what you need to develop to, to walk through the moments where you kind of are, you, know, you recognize that you are in a foolish situation where you kind of bogged down by, by what's going on. You're kind of not regaining balance. You don't see the evenness of things. And, and in those moments, the great trust helps you go through and cut the fear, um, the fear of losing, the fear of not having, the fear, um, this, those, those fears that are driving typically the importance of whatever is bogging you down mm -hmm. and making it more important than what it really is, you know, and, and those, um, so, I mean, I wanted to kind of, kind of put all this together and see, you know, like the practices about that is about how we regain the balance quicker, how we can identify our own foolishness and, and kind of, uh, connect again to, to our wise, um, you know, mind, and at the same time, don't suffer the foolishness, which is temporary, you know, mm -hmm. um, because the great trust, what, what the great trust brings is that capacity of not suffering the foolishness that we may not be able to correct instantaneously. It's not, um, it's just like recognizing that, okay, this is, this is how it feels now. And I trust that it will change. I trust that it will that, you know, things will develop in a way that I will reconnect mm -hmm. because that's the trust. And, uh, and, and because I mean, reconnecting is inherent and, and the more we practice, the more, the faster we connect. I mean, that's my own experience. I mean, um, I, I recognize that after, you know, years of practice, you know, the, the times where I kind of get caught up with something are shorter, you know, and. And, uh, and that is, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a very encouraging thing for me um, that every time that I feel like I'm, you know, I'm disconnected, it's shorter. I, I'm able to, to, to realize that, okay, you know, like why am the way this is so important and then kind of it winds it down. And, and, and I'm not saying that there is no suffering in the middle, but I, you know, the suffering, I don't, I don't create additional suffering to it. Hmm. Um, so. I mean, that's, that's what I'm hearing. I think, you know, this was very, uh, very particularly connecting today for me. And, uh, and I thank you very much, um, for, for doing this, um, and for sharing all this with you guys. Thank you. Yes. What's encouraging is change, right? So it's the same mind, the same eye that uh, opens and closes, right? And, um, and it changes and uh, What's important to note is that when we have moments of feeling bogged down by life or feeling small or feeling uh, tired or feeling discouraged, it changes. When we have moments of feeling clarity and feeling uh, connected, it also changes, right? And this is actually a very important part of the teachings is that it's neither this nor that. Right, so we can we in one day we can experience ma many moments of foolishness and many moments of wisdom. 
or many periods of foolishness or periods of wisdom, and that's fine. So not only that is help, it's helping us maintain a much more realistic practice, it's also helping us be, become less judgmental about other people. We know we can also get bogged down by life. We know we can also act in foolish ways. Knowing that we also act in foolish ways, well, maybe we can be more tolerant of other people acting in foolish ways. Right? So when we feel, well, I feel wise, great. Just wait a while. Right? Wait a while and see what happens. Sooner or later, you're going to fall down. And sooner or later, you will get up. So as long as we don't look for definition of a self, then we're good to go. And we keep learning. And, and you're right. The more we practice, like, yeah, the more we practice, the more aware we become. And also, the less weight we give to what happens. And no big deal. My, no big deal is not dismissive. No big deal. All it means is let's, I'm not going to add anything to it. I see what's going on. And I'm going to do what I can about this. But I'm not going to make a, a drama out of it. Right? So it's the drama that diminishes over time. Or maybe the interest in drama is what we lose over time. So there's a lot of that in the world. I see a lot of you nodding your heads. Okay, uh, should we move on? Anyone else? Did I miss a hand? Okay. 31. Good friends, when I was with Master Hungjen, as soon as I heard his words, I experienced a great realization, and I saw the original nature of reality directly. Therefore, I am passing on this teaching to later generations, so those who study the way will realize enlightenment directly, and so th that those who contemplate the mind will realize their original nature directly. And actually, this is exactly what we're doing. This is exactly how it is being passed on. He passed it on. He had realization. He heard the words, had realization, passed it on. And it is being passed on now by us. Since we are taking it up as a study. We're looking at it. We're allowing it to penetrate us. And now, Winnig is referring here to the time when uh, he was with Humjen. And Humjen, if you remember, called him to his room at midnight to teach him the Diamond Sutra and pass on the transmission. And so, describing the realization he had while he was listening to Humjen, Winnig said, and I'm going back to previous sections, when, when he reached, you should give rise, he is Humjen, when he reached, you should give rise to a thought without being attached to anything, I suddenly realized that nothing in this world is separate from our own nature. So again, you should give rise to a thought without being attached to anything. What kind of a thought is that? A thought that is not attached. So give rise to a thought that is not attached to anything. 
Now look at the thoughts that are floating around in, in our heads, in our minds now. They're all about attachment. They all arise out of attachment and they all lead to further attachment. That's how attachments perpetuate, through thought. When we, to give rise to a thought that has no attachment in it is to feel and experience liberation. Or to see that within the mind that produces attachments, we can actually become liberated. And then he said, he said I said, Master, he actually talked to Hunjen, how could I have guessed that my own nature was already pure? After he had realization. How could I have guessed that my own nature was already beyond birth and death? How could I have guessed that my own nature was already complete? It doesn't make sense. Because it goes against the grain. The grain says... You have to do a lot in order to, to arrive somewhere else, in order to be worthy of this. To be worthy of realization. And they say, how could I have guessed that that's not true? How could I have guessed that my own nature was already unshakable? And how could I have guessed my own nature could give birth to all things? So, I am the ocean. Not a drop in the ocean, but a drop in the ocean that is the ocean. All at once. So, that's what he referred to when he said, when I heard Hunjen. And then he says, if you are able, if you're unable to realize this by yourself, you need to find a truly good friend to point out the way to see your nature. And what do I mean by a truly good friend? Someone who understands the teachings of the Supreme Vehicle and who points directly to the true path is truly a good friend. A great intermediary, a guide who helps people see their own nature. And that's what Dharma teachers do. right? They, they echo, they mirror, they reflect what's already there. All good teachings can only come about due to truly good friends. Now, the good in the good friends is referring to the good that has no opposition. To the inherent goodness. Even when it is covered up by a lot of madness, the inherent goodness, same as wisdom, is not tarnished. Is not in question. In a sense, the Buddhas of all of the three periods and the twelve divisions of the canon are fully present in this nature of yours. If you can't realize it by yourself, you need to find a good friend to show you how to see your nature. But if you realize this by yourself, you don't need to look for a good friend somewhere else. Or you are the good friend, right? And if someone insists that you have to find a good friend, somewhere else before you attain liberation, that place does not exist. You will attain liberation when you meet the good friend inside your own mind. But as long as your mind is full of confusion, delusions, and mistaken views, even the instruction of an external good friend won't be able to save you. 
So again, examine rather than demand externally that something will be given. Examine the notion of lack. Examine the mistaken views which give rise to the notion of lack. Don't take it face value. Look at it. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this when I'm not measuring or quantifying? Not after I measure and quantify. Then he said, if you can realize this by yourself, the moment you give rise to the light of Prajna, all your delusions will vanish in a flash. This is your truest friend. With one realization, you reach the stage of Buddhahood. Use this wisdom to illuminate the land of the mind of your nature. And when inside and outside are perfectly clear, you will know your own mind. And once you know your own mind, you will be free. And once you have gained your freedom, this is the Samadhi of Prajna. And the realization of the Samadhi of Prajna is no thought. So dwelling nowhere, is dwelling everywhere, or is being everywhere, all at once. And what do we mean by no thought? The teaching of no thought means to see all dharmas without being attached to any dharma, to reach everywhere without being attached anywhere, to keep your own nature pure, so then when the six thieves pass through the six gates, they neither avoid nor are corrupted by the six realms of sensation, but come and go freely. Now, the gang of six thieves, as you know, senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, as we chant. And the mind, the brain, in this case, is considered a sense organ like, not quite like the other senses, but more like a governing organ that takes the input and spits out actions or words. But Rinzai said, the six rays of divine light never cease to shine. So it's not that there's anything wrong with the senses by themselves. It's just that we use them. We don't use them well. We try to define ourselves. We create a sense of fixedness through the sen from, from the images or from what the senses are telling us. That's why he said that the six rays of divine light never cease to shine. So everything is teaching the same purity while we go against it, while we desecrate, we can say. So everything is sacred even when we desecrate. This is, this is the Samadhi of Prajna. Freedom and liberation constitute the practice of no thought. But if you, if you don't think any thoughts at all, the moment you make your thoughts stop, you are imprisoned by Dharma. We call this one-sided view. Or sometimes we say in Zen, it's a bolt-carrying fellow. Like imagine a big plywood, a four-by-eight plywood that you carry on the right side you only see the left side, right? If you carry it on the left side, you only see the right side, you're blocked. And seeing both sides is seeing, uh, seeing form and formlessness. 
or seeing the mountains and seeing the city. If we only see the mountain, we don't know how to practice, how to function in the city. If we don't, if we don't see the mountains, we, do, we, we get lost in our functioning in the city. So you see, he calls it one-sided view. Those who understand the teaching of no thought penetrate the 10,000 teachings. Those who understand the teaching of no thought see the realm of Buddhas. Those who understand the direct teaching of no thought reach the stage of enlightenment. So we have a few more minutes and I wanted to actually read. I came across um, different commentaries by a teacher, a, a Japanese teacher. His name was Kobun. And he was actually brought here by Suzuki to help him so many years ago. So he commented on this saying that the Sixth Patriarch says absence of thought means to have obtained wisdom and it is emancipation and to be emancipated means to know your own mind. The actual happening of daily life is not so simple when it occurs between people. It's more like choosing like or dislike, even if we experience emptiness, trouble will happen. We can, we can accept it and not be controlled by it. You don't, you don't lose yourself because of trouble. It's interesting, right? You don't lose, you can't lose yourself because you go through trouble. In this sense, emptiness is the same as absence of thought. Thought in this place is a little too rigid translation, he says. It means absence of a concept, but not absence of attitude. Attitude must not be absent. Preconception, he says, is a good word. Like dislike. These reactions come very quickly from habit. Absence of thought is not something to be obtained. Instead, you react to the whole figure of the idea to make it empty. So on the table, we see a teacup. We pile up ideas, likes and dislikes about this teacup and react to them. When I pick up the teacup, I crystallize my own attachments to it. We can see life as total attachment. At the same time, attachment is emptiness. Maybe I can keep this teacup in a good shape for 10 years. But when something nicer needs me, the, this attachment doesn't work. Attachment keeps relationship of people. And at the same time, it is not attachment or will become mere suffering. When attachment become very, very strong, object and subject have to become one. Only when you make the object free from you, you can become one with it. I'm going to say that again because this is very important. Only when you make the object free from you, you become one with it. And this is always relevant. Any moment, any situation, when we take ourselves out of the equation, we become immediately one with the situation. And this is no small task, obviously, to take ourselves out of the situation. When everything is about ourselves, isn't it? Everything is about me. But if I truly want to penetrate life, I need to get myself out of the way. 
So all my thoughts, all my opinions, put aside. Then you enter freely. And you become one with the situations. He says, accepting the existence of partner, husband, friend, wife, materials, thoughts, you can enter into oneness. Oneness. So you have to accept it. Then you enter. You don't need to cut your attachments. Attachment is actually emptiness. It does not reach to oneness. It's like sending an arrow to the sun. In complete independence, there is complete oneness. It doesn't mean you melt into the object like an ice cube in water. Keeping the form of an ice cube, it can be in the water. So it can be as it is. This is our existence. We can't melt and become a teacup, even when we are attached to it. One form of attachment is a strong feeling of wanting to make the object the same as you. Wanting to make the object the same as you. So to lose ourselves completely to the experience. Whatever the experience may be, it doesn't matter. Maybe more importantly, whatever we think about the experience doesn't matter. Because if we go to what we think about the experience, we are separated from the experience. And we, are, we don't understand the experience, obviously, because we don't even see it. Right? We remain disconnected from life. So, I think there's a lot there for us to, uh, to work with. Anybody wants to say the last word before we wrap it up for the day? Okay. So, work with that. See where it takes you. Uh, it is obviously work in progress. And, uh, and take all this and bring it into your life. Don't make it an external study or external practice. Truly bring it into your life. Meaning, you have to translate that into your life. It's not one size fits all. Thank you.